to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Bullock, and as always, we like to talk about things related to crisis management, well-being, business continuity, COVID, resilience, anything that helps you, your organization, or your community plan for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. You can find me on LinkedIn. I am the only Alex Fullick there. I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. Now, today, we're going to talk once again. I've got another returning guest, Gavin Freeman. Gavin, welcome back. Thank you, Alex. It's lovely to be here. And we're going to talk about two different things today. The first being, uh, or part one, I guess we could say, is well-being and mental health, because we touched on that the last time you and I talked. And part two, we'll talk about um, really the gap in C-suite training. Sounds like a wonderful plan. Now, just in case somebody didn't listen to the other episode of Crisis Management and Psychology, could you take a quick minute and just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Love to, absolutely, and thanks for having me again. Uh, So Gavin Freeman's my name. Um, I've been a psychologist now for well over 20 years. Um, I started off my career specialising in high-performing teams and individuals, worked with our Australian Olympic team, went to a few Olympic Games, really focusing on how do individuals perform in the moment. Um, Once I finished that career and transitioned into my next one, um, really took that same philosophy around thinking about the the moments in time that individuals have to perform in and then looking at ways of helping them build their level of mental toughness, resilience. And the fact I have a particular phrase that I like to talk about, for me, the difference between good and great is the ability to perform consistently under pressure. And it's that consistent piece and then the under pressure piece that's interesting because I think anyone can perform. It's about being able to do it over and over again um, and then under significant amount of pressure. And I think crisis really brings that to the forefront. Many individuals out there will operate in their normal day-to-day life, BAU, um, and never really experience a full, true crisis and never really test themselves. Um, Athletes, we see athletes happening all the time. They live in that world. But in the corporate world, it's not something that comes about all that often. Um, COVID has really turned that on its head and, and given us great insights around how people have responded to a variety of you know, unprecedented situations. Yeah, COVID, I think, has uh, flipped a lot of thinking and behaviors and uh, practices on its head. It really has, but it's also highlighted for organizations this whole fact of what we can and can't do. And it you know, really does play into the conversation we're going to have today about mental health and well-being, around how we deal with our staff, how we respond to their needs and their, and their requirements and their demands, um, how we might have to push back in slightly different ways, and then also how we need to adapt to this new way of working 
when and how organizations decide on their new model. Because every organization is going to have a variety of different models, everything from you know, 100% back at work to 100% not back at work and everything in between. And I think that is going to, it's going to test leaders in a way they've never been tested before because they've never had to think about the impact on the person in their decision-making process and how they are making decisions. Whereas in the past, it was, you just come to work. And if someone was having a bad day, you kind of just sent them home. And you said, take a day off or, you know, have a stress leave or, you know, take a few extra days of, of, of leave. And that was generally the way of dealing with it in the past was, you know, allow somebody else to deal with it or at least allow the person to go home and deal with it on their own. Um, We've seen a significant change now and the new models are going to require staff to recognise that they're as responsible for their staff members in the office as they are back in their home work environment. And that adds a layer of complexity that I don't think many businesses have actually really thought through. No, it's interesting because um, uh, you know, as we're talking now about well-being and uh, mental health, there was recently a... Uh, here in Canada, there was a, uh, a survey done of employees and people going back to the office and organizations that were kind of mandating people to go back to the office. And it turned out that 53% of people said, if I'm mandated to go back to the office for my own well-being, I am quitting. Mm. That that's just quitting, not not the rest of the, the percentage will say, I will put up with it, or yeah. um, I will fight it and start finding a new job. But 53% said, I will quit right off the bat. Yeah, and, and I think that's, that's indicative. And look, I'm seeing things similar to that around the world. You know, here in Australia, we're having very similar kind of conversations. Um, it's not surprising. When, when individuals can, when they get feedback that enables them to see the art of the impossible, and then we demonstrate that the impossible is possible, to now suddenly go back, that's a real hard ask. And I think organisations are having to not just say we've got an office, they're actually having to demonstrate for the very first time the true benefit of why that individual needs to spend an hour or two commuting from their workplace into the office, missing out on all those things we've suddenly realised we've now can see, kids, um, spending time with loved ones, elderly parents, even just having an extra hobby with that extra time we had not commuting has given us opportunities to see what, what the art of the impossible is for us. And now we're saying, well, I want to be able to do this. I want to have my cake and eat it too. Yeah, well, it, it's as though uh, the, the door has been opened, the can of worms have been opened, and, and it seems box. some organisations now, no, I, I won't say all, but some organisations want to try and push everybody back in, close the door and close that can of worms. I don't think we can now. No, um, I don't think we can. And I don't think we want to either. I think the, you know, that, that old style of leadership being, you're not performing unless I can see you performing yeah. um, has very much disappeared. Um, at least, at least in, you know, the, the environments that, that you and I probably operate in, um, that, that, you know, that philosophy is gone. Obviously, there's some businesses that can never do that, manufacturing businesses, production-based businesses. Uh, they just simply can't do that. If you've got a large amount of stock, if you run an airline, you can't tell, you know, the, the air stewards, can't, you know, the air um, staff can't work from home. They're going to have to get on a plane. 
So there are clearly some businesses. The, the bigger challenge, I think, are the businesses that have hybrid work um, situations where you have the, um, uh, the manufacturing staff, as an example, having to come in because of plant and equipment. And then you've got the, you know, the support staff who are able to work from home. So you've got the same business and you've got half or a percentage of staff who can work from home and a percentage who physically just can't. And that, that in of itself can, for some, I think those are the businesses that are going to struggle the most because they're going to have to send out very different messaging to their businesses. You know, the finance businesses, the, you know, the, the marketing businesses, the advertising businesses, they're ones where you can, everybody can work from home. They'll have it a little bit easier because they'll only have to manage one message out to their, their staff. Um, I think the hybrid approach to those organizations that you just mentioned, there's a danger of creating an us and them mentality, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. And it, and it will come through because generally the, the them being, sorry, the us being those that are staying, you know, we're here and the them being, you know, you people working from home, um, they will, they, they will, and I've already seen it happening here. I'm working with some organizations who are in that exact space. There is that, you know, nothing's changed for the group internally. They're not, you know, they don't, they still have, you know, they're timed when they get their break. They only get five minutes at one point in time or a lunch break at 10. And then they, whereas the other group can take lunch whenever they like and go and have a cup of coffee, you know, um, they're starting to really have to be very clear around managing that message. So I don't think that's going to, that's going to be the tricky one and it's going to be hard. And, and, you know, back to our topic today, which is how do you manage then the mental health of your individuals through this, this period of time where we're trying to resettle everybody. And, you know, there's lots of old theories out around forming, storming, norming and conforming around how teams kind of come together. And in a way we're, we're sort of doing a variation of that now where individuals are having to reconnect in different ways and work out what's right. And, and that's for some people, they're legitimately going, look, I don't know. I don't know what's right for me. Mm. Um, and there's others who are saying, I do know what's right and I'm, I've got it, I'm going to set it down. So, look, it, look, it's, it's interesting, it's fascinating, it's exciting. I think it's giving businesses opportunities to explore new ways of doing things. That innovation curve mm -hmm. is going to be really pushed. The opportunity and the, you know, the production possibility frontiers are really going to be pushed for some organisations. I actually think we're going to see an increase in productivity. I think the organisations who embrace this um, are going to be rewarded for the most part, rewarded from their staff who enable this environment. I think the ones who push back in sort of your description of, you know, get back behind that door and I'm going to slam it back closed, I think they're going to do irreparable harm to both their internal reputation um, mm -hmm. and also to ultimately to productivity. Because, you see, I can fake a behaviour for a period of time. I can pretend like I'm happy, you know, for a period of time. Um, and, and you may not know, I might be very miserable today, Alex, and I, but I can pretend for the next hour or so, 45 minutes, we're going to be chatting. Um, but I'm not going to be able to do that if you and I are chatting every single day. There's just no way I'll keep that up. So we can fake behaviour for, for small periods of time. We can't, fake our, we can't fake what's going on inside. And ultimately, the body and the brain will always want to be congruent. So what I'm thinking and what I'm behaving ultimately has to create a level of congruency and the body is always striving for what we call homeostasis. So I will, I will be as good as I need to be for the environment that I'm operating in, which is the basic fundamental of what homeostasis is. 
Um, you know, so if I'm meant to be a certain level of fitness, my body will give me that certain level of fitness if I train it. Uh, and then you match that with the kind of this behavioral and, and mental congruency. And what you get is hopefully a well-functioning human being who can walk up and down the stairs. Um, when organizations start to push and pull on those levers, the individual is going to push back. Um, and you're going to see it in some weird and wonderful ways that we haven't really recognized before, because I think the power has shifted a little to, to the person, less on the business. Well, let, let's take this a little step further because we've both mentioned the terms well-being and mental health here. Yeah. And reading some articles and listening to some other people, the terms seem to be interchangeable. But I think there's a difference between the two. So at least I think there is. Is yeah. there a difference between mental health and well-being? Look, I... Yes and no. I think fundamentally that they are interlinked. You know, to have well-being, you need to have good mental health because, as I was saying before, uh, the way we behave and the way we think have to be congruent. It's kind of like, do you remember the old saying where you've got to walk the walk and talk the talk? Mm -hmm. um, if I flip that on its head a little bit and I say to you, Alex, I want you to think to yourself that you are the most fantastic, productive, you know, human being on the planet, Right. But what I want you to do is I want you to drop your head. I want you to kind of slug, you know, slug your shoulders forward. I want you to slouch, right? Yeah. Eventually, part of you is going to go, but you're asking me to think like I'm a superstar, but you're telling me to behave like I'm a loser. So those two don't mix. So eventually one of two is going to change, and it depends. For mm. some people, the, the behavior will take over, and you'll go, well, I'm – I'm acting like I'm depressed. I'm acting like I'm upset. I'm acting. So I'm going to start thinking that way. And whatever Gavin told me to do, that's just nonsense, and I'll get rid of that. But the reverse happens. So if I say to you, you know, shoulders back, chest up, nice and proud, but think to yourself, I'm a complete loser. I'm a failure in life. That's not going to work. You're going to feel a disconnect. So for me, the mental health is around um, the way we understand, the way we interpret our world, it's around our self-talk, the, the self, you know, the, the little duck that quacks in the back of our head. Um, it's about our self-esteem, so the, the way we believe in our ability to do things, um, our confidence, all that to me is built up in mental health. So that's kind of I can control it. The well-being then becomes the manifestation of that. So how do I act? How do I behave? How do I engage? Um, you know, when, when we see people who suffer from levels of anxiety, right, there's the mental health side, which is their thought processes, but then there's the behavioural side of they can't go outside, they don't engage with people, they don't have social interactions. So to me, that's part of the well-being. But I've seen people interchange them as well, and I think most people out there will probably use the words interchangeably. I, cer I certainly do at times. But for me, there is that subtle difference between kind of what's going on up here and then what am I doing? How am I, you know, what am I putting out there? The nice thing about it, though, is that if you do separate the words out and take my definition of it being mental health being kind of our internal monologue and then the well-being sort of being the how it all presents itself, is that we can attack both sides if things aren't going well. So we can look at the way you're engaging with people. We can look at your social interactions. We can look at um, your, your social skills and help develop those, even if 
inside our own head, we're feeling like, oh, I don't want to see people. I don't want to talk to people. We can build that skill up and then kind of hope it helps. And the same way goes the other way around. You know, we might be out there engaging with people, but just not internalizing it really well and having sort of negative thoughts. We can just work on the negative thoughts side of things, come up with different strategies, you know, build a, you know, build a Dims and Sims model, which is a, you know, a fancy way of working out, you know, what are the, what's the danger in me? Where's my danger side? And what's the safety in me, the Sims model? Um, what, what, what makes me feel safe? So I think we can use it in that way. And it also means that organizations can do that. So they can recognize that there's ways that we can help people deal with their own self-internal monologues. And then there's also ways we can help promote the, the broader well-being, social interactions. Um, I actually think the biggest challenge organizations are going to face going forward is, is not the internal side because people have to deal with it themselves. It's the well-being and the external side being the social anxiety I think some organizations are going to see happening within their people. We don't know how to communicate with each other anymore. We actually have, we've been separated so much that when we come back together, I think some have just gone collided and others have gone, ooh, I don't want to go anywhere near you because, you know, yeah. it's way, Alex. Well, that, that brings up an interesting question then. <clears throat> if organizations need to deal with this uh, or look at it, um, and, and when I say that, I mean uh, everybody because executives yeah. are going to be the same way. Even the people in HR who may be tasked with doing this are going to feel the same way. But how do you deal with it when you've got introverts who weren't doing that great in the office are now doing great at home and extroverts who are doing great in the office but not doing as great as home? How do you deal with the introvert and extrovert component? Mm. So, so, it's really, so just to be really clear, most people interpret those two words wrong. So introverts and extroverts are not the difference between who's on the table and who's not on the table when you're at the pub. So it's about being really clear around, first of all, and I know what you're, you're meaning by that. So, we, you know, there's extroverted people versus introverted people. The actual definition for those of you who are interested, um, introverts and extroverts really come down to the way we think and where we draw our energy from. So uh, your introverted person is, a, is an internal thinker, draws our energy internally, comfortable with their own thoughts. Extroverted people tend to draw their, their energy um, from, from others. You know, so ironically, while I'm here, I, I stand on a stage. If I would be on a stage every day of my life, if I if I could, um, I'm an introvert. So I'm not actually oh, like, not an extrovert in the slightest. So I draw all my energies internally. You know, at a party, I'm usually sitting in the corner. But put me on a stage, and I'm loving it. But that's where I'm drawing my energy from. So it comes down to if you use that definition now, then it's saying. Um, okay, how are we going to provide the connection for people in different scenarios? So for those introverted people who like the internal thinking through, how do we allow them that space to do that? And the, extra, extra, the extroverted type people who need that energy coming in from others, whether it's the stepping over my desk and doing something and just saying, hi, it's the tap on the shoulder. Hey, Alex, let's go for a quick walk. And I just want to bounce something off you. Um, those are the challenges. So I think it's about understanding to some degree, flows of energy, and then for organisations trying to put in, in place different mechanisms that support it. Are they going to get it wrong? Absolutely. Do we actually know how to do it? I don't think we do yet because how do I replicate the quick tap on the shoulder, hey, Alex, let's have a quick cup of coffee. I just want to bounce an idea of you, but I'm at home because that doesn't work. The, the setting up of online meetings 
doesn't work. I think what I think what we're going to start to see is new technologies coming out that enable it. So, for example, you and I are communicating on Zoom. This has become the replica of a of a business table, right? You're on one side, I'm on the other. Yes, on the screen we look next to each other, but that keeps throwing my poor brain out because we're not. We're facing each other. Um, we don't have cameras that enable um, face. We don't have cameras that enable eye to eye contact. You're looking at me, but that's because you're disciplined and you've learned how to do it. If you watch my eyes, I'm actually I'm actually looking at you, even though my camera's there. So that's me looking at the camera, but now I can't see you. So so I deviate and then I come down. I think we're going to see technology that's going to help with that. I'd love it if the, you know, the camera was in the middle of my screen because then I could literally look at you and be seen like I'm looking at you. So we'll make that. And I think, look, for those techie people out there, that was my idea, and I own the worldwide patent <laughs> for that. If anybody takes that idea and builds on it, Alex, we've got that idea um, down pat. I think... What we need to now build on is different types of technology. So I saw a piece of tech the other, just a program the other day called Around, and it's very different to Zoom. So it's not the little square box, it's a little circle, and you see the person's face sitting up in the top of your screen. It feels different. It feels like we've kind of, I'm working on something, you're there, and I can kind of connect with you if I need to, and then put you on mute if I don't need you there. Um, so I think we're going to see different forms of technology that's going to support it. But I also think the other way we need to um, develop, and this is probably the most important point for organizations out there, is we've got to learn to engage with our organ with our people in different ways to gather information from them. We can't just assume we're going to know what we need to do. We've, we've got to, and I'm not talking about the, the surveys that go out or the pulse survey. We're actually going to have to train our leaders to engage with their staff at different levels, different emotional levels, um, different psychological kind of mindset levels. That's where I see organizations having to do the upskilling is training leaders on how to engage different forms of communication um, because that's going to give us all the information we need to then build these new models, whatever they might look like. Well, we only have two minutes left, uh, and I did want to ask one, qu one quick question. Yep. Um, so I guess it'll be a marathon answer. Uh, as an employee, what if I know one of my colleagues is suffering? What can I do to help that person? Uh, yeah, and look, we have something in Australia which I think is fantastic. I hope there's similar think programs, and I know there are several programs in, in the US and Canada. And um, we have these programs called EAPs, Employee Assistance Programs. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It comes down to levels of comfort. Um, obviously, if you see somebody struggling, you know, I would like to think and hope that most people will go up and engage and ask. But the reality is, Alex, if I come up to you and I go, hey, man, how's everything going? There's a good chance you're just going to say you're fine and you, you're just going to, you know, and we as people will then accept that. I'll take it on face value. So how do we, how do we engage to that next level? Um, it's about building trust. Fundamentally, it's about building trust. You will not share with me your, you know, your story unless, unless we can build some level of trust. So, you know, for the, if you're seeing somebody, if it's somebody who you haven't built that level of trust with, then you need to build it and you've got to do that slowly. So that's about engaging slowly. It's about inquiring. One of the ways we do know that kind of works and it does work to build trust with, um, with new people is rather than inquiring about them, share about yourself. Um, share share your own story. It's very powerful, and we do this in leadership development as well. When when we teach leaders to share their own story, 
particularly around, you know, why they're a good leader, why people should be led by them. And I know we're going to talk about that in the second half. But there's that level of sharing. If I let you know that I've been struggling a little bit with this whole COVID thing and working from home, there's far more likely for you to say, oh, so have I. And then you can engage in the conversation around, so what's your experience been like? And so on and so forth. So I think it's about trust. And I think if we if we actually start about sharing a little bit from ourselves, we'll find we build that, that bridge much quicker. And on that, we've come to the end of our first segment. We're talking today with Gavin Freeman about well-being and mental health. And we'll be right back with part two. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Not enough women are talking about money. Lisa Chastain is aiming to change that. If you are feeling uncertain with your financial decisions, join us on Real Money, Mondays at 10 a.m. on the Voice America Business Channel, where you will learn how to become more capable with your financial choices. Listen in and hear stories from other women on how they tackled their financial challenges. You will learn from leading industry experts all the tips, tricks, and advice that you need to establish financial confidence and freedom. Listen in Mondays on Real Money with Lisa Chastain. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, Small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Tune in each week for The Labenthal Report with hosts Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman. The Labenthal Report keeps you in tune with market conditions, investment opportunities, and outlooks based on the stories and headlines to keep you in touch with your financial success. Are you picking the right financial path? Find out by listening to The Labenthal Report live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Gavin Freeman. Gavin, great first segment talking about mental health and well-being and organizations and what they can do about it. Now, part two, we're going to change gears a little bit. And we're going to talk about the gap in C-suite training. In our last uh, episode that uh, we recorded, Psychology and Crisis Management, this cropped up uh, and we couldn't really get into it very, yeah. uh, very deeply or anything, but uh, we've got some time now to, to uh, focus on that topic. So uh, my first question then is, uh, why is there a gap and how is that gap created with the C-suite in training? 
So it's there for a number of reasons. Fundamentally, um, the gap exists simply because um, crises don't happen every day of the week. Now, the difference between you know, your, your, your typical CEO and C-suite uh, individuals, as opposed to, let's say, the, you know, the head of a firefighting department, is that the amount, you know, what is their BAU? So what is their business as usual? For the firefighter, business as usual is putting out fire, cutting people out of cars, responding to emergencies. So can they respond really well to crisis? Absolutely, yes. That's what they're trained for do. They're trained for it all the time. Now, flip that on its head. Let's take COVID out of the mix because that has been a unique environment. But prior to that, and I think moving forward as well, the, 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 um, the, ever, you know, the, the amount of crises that actually present themselves to a point where individuals have to think differently is minute. Now, in saying that, I think we're going to see a huge change and we're really seeing a huge change. And I will jump into that a little bit later. I'll happily share my insights around that. So that's where the gap's coming from. CEOs aren't trained to think like that because they don't really need to think like that. They're trained to think strategically. They're trained to think um, you know, operationally. They're trained to, trained to think horizon-based into the future. Where am I going? But they're not trained to think about everything has just hit the proverbial fan and now I need to stop, act, pivot, direct. And the other, the other reason for the major gap is the fundamental definition of what a crisis is. So for me... The, 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 a crisis is only a crisis when there are two factors at play, lack of time and lack of information. Outside of that, it's just simply a decision that needs to be made. If I've got all the time in the world and all the information, then it's not really a crisis, even though the evidence might suggest it's a crisis because the thinking isn't required at the same level. During a real crisis where you've got lack of time, lack of, of evidence, you're now having to make decisions which is contrary to the way most CEOs and C-suite think. Because how do they think? They say, give me a couple of weeks. They'll send their teams off to go and do some research. They'll come back with all the data. They'll then make an informed decision around the data that they've got. And then, then they'll look at implementing it, piloting it, trying something, getting feedback loops, checking it, testing it, sending it back out again. That's not in a crisis. Hence why there's a gap. Um, and then they don't train for it. Most CEOs, whether you do an MBA program or you've just come up through the ranks, very rarely would you've gone out and done any training um, in crisis. And even if you have, it's sort of like media training. So, Alex, you're in the media all the time. Do you need training? Maybe not directly, but a little tweaking on the edges every now and then. You might look at a video, get a bit of feedback, tweak something or other. For most execs out there, they might do media training once a year and think they're media savvy and they can be put in front of any camera and they can just sprout out brilliant articulated English or whatever language they speak and come across brilliantly. And generally speaking, they don't. So if you think of media conferences, the process, same kind of factors going out. They're not trained. And if they are, it's only very minutiae training. So you're only done once a year if you're lucky. And it's never reinforced and it's never practiced. Is that part of the problem then in uh, higher education that we are focusing and um, giving future leaders, corporate leaders, community leaders, the one idea of increase the bottom line or, you know, increase productivity, you know, focus on these areas with kind of rose colored glasses and nothing will go wrong. So we don't teach them anything when something does go wrong and they're not equipped. So look, I've, I 100% agree with you. I've yet to see a, um, 
you know, an undergrad, maybe once you get into your postgrads and if you go back to do an MBA, you know, or any form of postgraduate study, it becomes a little broader. But it's very rare in your undergrad programs that you would get a combination of the work that needs to be done in that degree, whatever the degree might be, the learning that needs to be done, and then a combination of leadership development, you know, whether it's straight up being able to manage people. Um, in fact, very rarely do they ever get any strategic development. It's not until later on that they kind of have to build their strategic mindset and definitely crisis. Look, I teach into an MBA program and um, we don't have any direct units on crisis management. I include them in my course because I run a strategy course. I do strategy mm-hmm. under crisis, but it's done as a single, single unit. Um, so a single lecture as part of a unit. Um, I'd love it if we uh, started to add some of these factors in um, for people in their undergrad level so that they're not getting, you know, crisis management or people management 101 into their postgrad too late on, along in their career. You need to get it done earlier. It, it seems that the training for crisis management is on the job and in real time, but that all creates problems, right? Absolutely. You know, what athlete decides to play their first competition without having trained and they're going to train in the warm-up before the game starts? Just doesn't, just doesn't happen. Um, or without a doubt. Um, you know, I would run anywhere between 100 to 200 crisis exercises per, per year to try to support businesses. But ultimately, in doing that, it's one a year or one every two years, if you're lucky, mm. for some of these individuals. So, you know, and inevitably they turn up, it's in their diary, crisis management or crisis training. They usually don't want to be there because there's no deep connection to the why. Mm-hmm. So they rock up, they go through the motions, they tick the box, they go back to their desk and they hope they never have to use the training ever again. Um, not a great way of doing it. But, but we do know that many organisations who value this work, actually see the value outside of just crisis management. Being able to make quick decisions with that lack of information, lack of knowledge, actually is quite a powerful skill to have. When you do then have all the information and a little bit more time, you become more effective, more decisive. You're able to control your emotions more effectively because you've learned that emotional awareness. You can pick up cues from people in the environment, how they're going. All those skills are clearly transferable back into BAU world. So for me, I see a huge opportunity for training execs. And look, the ones that I do work with on a regular basis have actually seen that. So I will do, for some organisations, far more regular training programs on an ongoing basis um, because they're starting to see the benefit of it moving forward. So let's take that a little bit further. Where you and I are in an, uh, an organisation and we know our leadership doesn't have any uh, or very little crisis management training. How can we go about, how can the organization go about in raising that uh, awareness and training level for executives? We can't just, you know, look, because you gave a great example, you know, they might show up because it's a tick box. But how do we change that overall so that they're showing up to actually participate and learn something? How do, what kind of things do we need to do? What will we, what can we do that actually stimulates you know, yeah. them to want but, to be a part of this. 
It's a great question. It's a multi-pronged answer because it very much depends on the type of the business. Um, it depends on how they measure their success. So the first question I would do in your business is go to the business and say, how do we measure the success in your business? If it's return on investment or profit share, you know, return to stakeholder, well, then, then we can start to look at the impact of a, of a crisis on the share price. If it's, you know, um, a more community-based organisation or reputational-based organisation, you can then, you know, get evidence or, or information around, well, what would happen if your community, you know, rejected you or major attack on your repu reputation? Look, fortunately, in my world, there's lots of, of examples. The, the challenge becomes overcoming the yes, but that'll never happen to me mindset. That'll never happen to mm. us. We don't, we have policies and procedures in place. So we'll never have fraud in our business. And in my world, the word never is, is like a red flag to a bull in a china shop because yep. <laughs> never say never. I think, I think the one there is, there's been one sort of global incident that I've seen, and it's really changing the mindset of execs and, and for the most part, actually changing the mindset of boards. I've done more work with boards in the last 12 months than I have ever done in my career to date. Fundamentally, what's driving that is the threat of a cyber attack. Mm -hmm. So a couple of years ago, um, at least in Australia, and I'm sure you know, Canada and the US were, were probably similar, we were very fixated on the, the active aggressor threat. So what would we do if a lone wolf came in? What would we do if somebody came? And America clearly far more um, aware of those scenarios, less, less in Australia. Um, very much aware of that. The problem with the aggressive, active aggressor mindset was most organisations then deferred to police intervention for the resolution. So it was, yes, there's a problem. Yes, we need to be able to respond, but the police will then come along and take care of it. With cyber attacks and ransomware attacks now becoming unbelievably prevalent, um, changes in regulations around the world. So there's been a shift. So for those of you in the finance world, you know, you look at the, the bear um, uh, regulations coming out predominantly from the UK, but now spreading out predominantly in the finance, but it's going to go wide. And, you know, if you're in risk right now, um, you are going to be held accountable. If you're a CEO or an executive or a C-suite or a board member, there is, you're not far away from being held personally accountable if you're not already. So the, the threat of cyber attacks, the threat of losing not just finances but reputation, privacy, acts around the world are all now starting to update. I think CEOs are getting the message and C-suite are getting the message. They need to respond. So for now, right now, I can't think in the last six months, I can't think of a scenario that I've run for a group that hasn't involved a cyber attack. Um, and I can't think of a organization who hasn't invited me to speak, speak to their board. I've got three this week where I'm doing board presentations. Now, the nice thing about this is when the board says this is a problem, we need to be on top of this, C-suite tend to follow pretty quickly. They don't tend to go. So for me, it's about getting the message up to the board, but then it's also getting the message to the exec saying, we know these things are happening. Here are examples. There's some research houses out there that do a lot of research. You can use that. But there's also actual real-life scenarios um, where we can say, this is your organisation, just with another name in the front. Here's what happened. Look at the impact. See the share price. Show them the data. I think trying to just convince somebody is never the way to go. Alex, mate, trust me, this is the right way to do things. That's not going to work, right? If I want to get you to change your um, your style of interviewing, 
me just saying to you, Alex, you should do it a little differently or you should do this or you should do that or you should think about that, you're likely to go, hmm, interesting. If I then say to you, hey, Alex, let's go and have a look at this person, see how they've done this, look at the angle, look at the video positioning, you know, look at the way they've asked, look at the outcome, share the comments from their viewers, Shares their, their, read, their viewership's gone from there to there. You might go, ooh, ooh, I, yeah. I like that. So I think it, we need to be evidence-based, but we also need to put people face-to-face with the information. But we need to underpin it by their motivational hurdles, which is what's in it for them, what's going to hurt. So understand and identify how people define success is a great way to start. Is the using your example, cyber attack or ransomware, is that the kind of red line that executives and board of directors have finally clued in that we need to focus on these disasters and crises and uh, other things that are happening. And cyber is the one that hopefully gets everyone to start thinking that, hey, you know, not just cyber attack, but once we've got a plan in place for that, maybe we should look at, you know, floods because we're built on a floodplain. You know, is it is it the red line that has now finally caused uh, boards and C-suite to finally really address you know crises and and crisis management? Look, I hope so. And and the reason for it, as opposed to the flood, the fire, you know, the building um, being hit by a tornado, whatever it might be, many of those scenarios are some cases a little bit out of control, but in but in a lot of cases either preventable or we can mitigate that reasonably quickly we can see the problem we're having floods in australia at the moment now it's Mm -hmm. fascinating to see the conversations going on around well why didn't we build bigger levees or whatever it might be but they can build a bigger levee so then they can kind of solve the problem the 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 uniqueness of cyber um, is that there is no clear levee that can be built that's going to stop it there's not the right amount of cladding you can put on the outside of your building that won't burn. So if we look at that awful, you know, case in the UK where that building burned down, you know, organisations have learned from that. They're redoing the cladding all all around the world. It's hit here in Australia. We're we're redoing cladding, massive big programs in place. So where there's quick mitigation, people are going, well, it's less of a concern for me. Cyber, they don't know how they get, you have no idea how they're getting in. So you might say, I've got a great firewall, I've got a great all of this. I come along and do the scenario and says, yeah, but they got in. How? I don't know. They're in and they've got your data. So you can either as an executive moan and complain about, oh, but we've got all the best systems in the world, or they actually start to realise, hang on, I need to be able to deal with it regardless of how good it is because you never know. And this is the thing about the cyber attacks and the ransomware attacks is that they're always one step ahead. Whatever you know, whatever the virus protector company builds the, the 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 response to now, everybody out there, make sure you're really clear on this. Your virus protector only protects for the viruses that are already out there because they have to see the virus before they can write the protection for it. They can't write for protection for stuff they don't know what's there. It's just it's just not possible. So I think that is the catalyst. Is that execs are saying I can't control this. It's it's beyond my ability of sphere of control or, or even influence, this is so far beyond me that I better do some training around what happens when and if it hits. Do you think that now because of ransomware and cyber attacks and, and what you just said, 
is going to change uh, training for future leaders? You mean they don't, uh, they don't have to become the president or CEO before they get training. Now that hopefully that training is going to happen, you know, at, um, you know, entry level uh, positions in university or college or something like that for future leaders. So they build that. Well, my, if we can make that happen, we will definitely see a, you know, a global improvement. And I think, in fact, we'll actually see less threats coming through because when you demonstrate you can mitigate something, well, the bad actors are not going to attack that anymore because if they're getting thwarted very early on. Now, legislation and regulation will change. So I know the US has been looking into it, that they're trying to regulate against paying ransom. So that's that's a little bit of the, the the regulatory stick that can come out and help, but no. Fundamentally, I think we need to develop we need to develop individuals. The challenge comes down to how you develop them, and it's all well and good saying we need to develop, but there needs to be, you know, I think a rethink in the methodologies of how we actually train high performing individuals to be higher performing individuals. I think there's a there's a little bit of a mindset shift that says. And particularly for your classic CEO, right? How did they become a CEO? Well, they were clearly identified as being a leader, probably talented in their sphere of, of, of area, and then get to the point where they are the best of the best. Now you're saying to that individual, actually, no, you're not. Well, you might be the best of the best. We need to train you to be better. And then we need to train you to be better than better. And then we need to train you to be better than better than better. So it's this continual learning that we actually need to bring into the C-suite. They're very good at pushing that down the totem pole and telling the grad, the first year supervisor, the manager, the exec, you know, the first year exec, you need to get better. But it's the now we've, we've got to shift, we've got to um, flip that script on CEOs and say, well, actually, you need to get better and you need to continually get better. So I think um, CEOs and C-suites need to own that continual development mindset. But, but as, lead, as, as leaders in, that tr- in the training field, if that's where I put myself, we need to be better at actually building training programs that are going to work for leaders. And that is a unique skill. Your traditional workshop just does not work with your CEO sitting there. You, we, we need to build better programs. And there are ways to do it, um, but we do need to do that. Do you think part of the uh, uh, response for C- CEOs, et cetera, uh, wanting to learn this is because they can go to jail? That's only the start. I think the, 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 the stick or the fear threat is, is one thing. I, I prefer to engage at the... You know the the, the most mo- the self motivated level of, of a CEO and say, well, you're clearly motivated and self motivated to get to that spot. How would you like to be better? So I work with elite. I still do some work with elite athletes, and it's always a fun conversation when I say to to the the star of the team, the Michael Jordan of the team. So how are you getting better? And I can tell in a nanosecond whether they're going to be a superstar or superstars because. The average superstar says to me, why do I need to get better? I'm going to help my teammates. You know, that's their, their, their perspective. I'll make everybody else around me better. The superstar of the superstars says, yeah, I'll help my teammates, but I'm still challenging myself to be better. So I think there's, there has to be a, an internal dialogue that has that because hmm. then you can work with it. Then you can build it. Then you can grow it. We've only got a couple of minutes left. Do you have any final thoughts on uh, training for the C-suite? Uh, yeah. 
personnel? So there's a couple of things to, to think through in this, and it's how we train them. The mistake most organizations make is they use a simple form of training. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again, and imagining and hoping to hell that they're all going to get better at it. That's your traditional training model, which is just, just read, a little bit of goal orientation, kind of read to this point, but you mm. just repeat yourself. We need to up the ante. So we need to include two very distinct styles of training. Um, the first level is um, effectively called, there's a variety of different ways of doing it. I like to think of it as um, procedural in nature, right? Whereby we, we follow a process and we incorporate that goal orientation and that feedback loop. So we're purposeful in our thinking. Why are we doing something? So we're, we're procedural and we're purposeful. And you sort of take the two Ps, you put them together and you go, what is the purpose behind this? We need to be very clear what it is we're trying to achieve. We need to be very clear on the goal. We need to be very clear on our feedback loops. So how do we get information back to you? Right, So that's kind of that purposeful procedural training. That's step two. That's good, but it's not great. The great level of training is when we turn training into what we call deliberate training. And deliberate training has a few unique um, elements in addition to the purposeful training. So purposeful is set the goal, evaluate the goal, bring it back. Direct training incorporates two new factors, one being um, measuring ourselves against other experts. So looking to not just other experts in our field, but, but experts in general. So looking around. So if you're the CEO of, of an organization, if you haven't spoken to your local fire chief, you're not doing well enough, mm. right? If you haven't spoken to, you know, um, other emergency services type organizations or people who deal with other types of incidents, that's, you're not doing enough, right? So you need to bring in other experts in that starting phase of, of being deliberate. The, the second thing we need to do is recognise that part of our deliberate development is, is the development of effectively what we call a mental schema, a picture in our head of how we do things. And the more, in the most simplistic way, the more pictures we have in our head, the more effective we're going to be. So I need to have multiple pictures for different scenarios so that when I get presented with a scenario, I've got an immediate, ah, I know what to do here. Firefighters do this particularly well. I keep using them as the example because they are, they are particularly good at this. So for me, deliberate additional experts, but then also these additional mental pictures. The more pictures you have, the more effective you're going to be. And on that, we've come to the end of our show. Gavin, great talking to you. Lots of good information here. I, I really like to the, the talk about getting the C-suite and how to make them better at what they do and making them better of who they are, actually, you know, when it comes to crisis leadership and management. So I really enjoyed uh, your chat and all your insights. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Have a great night. You too. And everybody watching and listening, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for preparing for the unexpected please tune in for another edition featuring your host alex bullock next thursday at 10 a.m pacific time and 1 p.m eastern time on the voice america business channel we'll see you here next week